Today is November 3rd. Uh, it's a Wednesday night. And we're going to be finishing the first chapter of John. Today is Happy Republicans Day. Uh, if you all turn in your Bibles to John 1, we're going to start in verse 35. Uh, tonight's topic, we'll finish the, uh, the first chapter of John. The first message that we taught on this chapter was revealing the Father. Jesus' purpose was to come and reveal the Father. Then the next uh, portion that we covered had to do with um, the messianic expectation, what the people of Israel were looking for at the time of Christ. And we went through those, and then we moved right on into Jesus, the Lamb of God. Uh, When John announced Jesus, he announced Him as the Lamb come to take away the sin of the world. And if you haven't picked up anything else new from John, because I realize John may be a familiar book to you, what you should be beginning to see is that John is filled with uh, cultural context. You know, when we start in the beginning with words like, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, it was immediately reflective of Genesis 1.1. When you moved on to messianic expectations and you hear that they're asking about Elijah or they're asking about the prophet, it immediately brought the Jews back and this writing should bring you back to a place where those things were promised. All of this is to especially the Lamb of God. If no other message did, you realize that when uh, John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God, it immediately brought conception to their mind of various ones that God had been installing in the Jewish society over hundreds of years. Well, this message tonight will be much like that. My, my goal in teaching is not just that you get the spiritual application today, not just that you understand the Word correctly, but also that you begin to become a student of the culture that the Word was written in. You know, we do ourselves a great disservice to approach the book of John or any other book in the Bible as uh, people from North America living in this century. You know, there, it was written and given in a culture and a context for a reason. Much like when he said, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world, the Jew would think of all of the sacrifices, they would think of the Passover lamb, they would think of redemption and all of those things. And today when you walk up to somebody on the street and you mention the word lamb, that doesn't come to mind. This next passage is much like that. And for that reason, I've not found commentaries that I thought satisfactorily covered this issue. I've not heard anybody preach, although I'm sure there's many that have this revelation. I've just not heard people bring this to light in the way that I hope to this evening. And it's been a long day and all of us have been up late and sick and all of those things. But this will be one that you'll be able to tuck in your belt that I'm hoping you'll remember for years because it is special. Because we lost that one message uh, and it didn't go on audio, we backed up and we covered the Lamb of God again on a Sunday morning. And when we did, we only brought it down to verse 34. We didn't, we didn't finish uh, the subject from 35 um, on down to 42. So I'm going to read that quickly, recap it just a little bit as we get into tonight's topic, which is Bethel. Okay? So if you're taking notes, the title would be uh, John 1:35 through uh, 51. One, and it is Bethel. It says, 
starting in verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Don't you love how John puts that in parentheses for you? He realizes he's writing to an audience outside of just the average Jew, so he explains Jewish sayings. So he says, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Now, it's just important to note here, I told you when we started the book of John, that John was written in Roman time. Romans reckoned time the same way that we reckon time, as 24-hour time periods, and they counted from midnight forward. Their day uh, started or ended at midnight, just like ours does. Jews did that much, much differently. A Jewish day starts at uh, 6 in the evening and ends at 6 in the evening the next evening. This is because in the book of Genesis, we start in a time period of darkness, light is introduced, and it was evening, then morning, the first day. So it's reckoned from evening to evening as a whole day. The reason I say that is because if it's the tenth hour and this is Jewish time, what you have is ten hours from uh, six when the day started would make this 4 p.m. And you can't spend a whole day with somebody if you don't meet them until 4 p.m. But you know that it's Roman time because it was 10 a.m. and they spent the whole day together. Uh, that's borne out if you look in the other Gospels. There's good clues to that in Luke 5.5. 5. There's good clues in other places, but the best evidence comes from the book of John. I believe that when you interpret the Scripture, my father and I were talking about this the other day, you would interpret this the same way you would if I wrote you a letter. It would, be, it would do me an injustice if you took the third paragraph of a letter in the second sentence and made it a standalone sentence without considering what was before it and after it. Scripture should always be interpreted in light of Scripture and more than that, in each book whenever possible. So you consider the statement uh, before and after it, you consider the book that it was written in and then you consider it in light of all of the Scripture. Well, when you do that with the book of John, you'll see there's three times in which uh, a time is given and all three times Roman time makes perfect sense, whereas Jewish doesn't. And more than that, it's caused many skeptics to look at the accounts of the crucifixion and go, wow, these guys are way off. Even the Gospels don't agree. It's just because they overlooked this. So I only mention that now as a footnote. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. Or for those of us that don't either speak Hebrew or Greek, that means the Anointed One. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter, which also means a pebble. Now, something that is important to recognize, and then we're going to get right into our subject tonight, and I've pointed this out before, but some of it made it on a CD and John the Baptist did something that was like uh, Christian ministry sh should be today. One of the problems with many Christian ministries, and I'm nobody to criticize anybody else, I'm just telling you it's a problem that I see in general, is people are out to build a name for themselves. They want uh, all in the name of Jesus, mind you, to be somebody great. 
John the Baptist really laid down a great example for us. He raised up disciples for the purpose of revealing Jesus. And as soon as Jesus was available, he transitioned people to Jesus. These early followers, you say, well, how on earth did they say this was the Messiah? They haven't spoken to him at all. They believed and heard the words of John. And look at how the, this is what the Bible means when it says the leaven works through the whole loaf. John says he's the Messiah. Some of John's disciples go and and believe he's the Messiah. And then what do they do? They go and get their brother, you know, and it begins to, to work like that. The gospel has never been a mass media campaign. Never. You know, it's, it's only been in fairly modern times that we've approached it with a worldly marketing point of view. It has always been one person sharing with another, sharing with another. And you'll see in the book of Acts later, it grew from house to house. They grew from house to house. And when you see 3,000 people saved at one time, that's not the first time they're hearing about Yahweh God. You know, it has been occurring from one person interacting with another and then somebody just triggered the thought. The, the day of the megachurch and the worldwide evangelist and all only works, if it works at all, it only works when each one of us are hearing the testimony about Jesus and sharing it with people we care about. He didn't go run and tell a stranger. He went and found his brother. Why would, you, why would he do that? He went and found his brother because they had a relationship. It means very little when a stranger tells you about their most intimate details in their life. You don't know them and you don't care. I mean, in Christendom, we say, oh yeah, we love them and all. Honestly, when you see somebody on the street and they say, pray for my mother's brother's sister's cousin, how much time do you spend just torn up in knots over that situation and praying for them? But when it's your mother-in-law that is hurting or when it's your child that's hurting, you can pray fervently, can't you? Well, the gospel is meant to be shared in that way. Okay, this takes us to our topic tonight. Uh, this is verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from a town in Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph couple interesting points about this, and then we'll dive right into that. Where did they find Philip? What did it say? Bethsaida. Bethsaida's nowhere important. Bethsaida's not a... It's not like uh, Capernaum. It's not a, a port. It's, uh, it's not like Caesarea. It's not a big Roman port. You know, it's not a town of consequence. You'll notice all the people that was picked were from the sticks. And all of them were from north Israel, and all the power in Israel was in south Israel. He took the lower elements of society by societal standards and turned the world upside down with them. We need to be very careful about that in the church when we're looking to people of prominence to do something for the Lord. It almost never works out right. Fame is a hard thing to balance with Christianity. you know. But our carnal churches think the first thing we need to do is go grab any athlete, anybody who the world looks up to, and uh, let's let them speak in our churches. That is not the way Jesus did it. Now, consequently... Or, ironically rather, I said Philip's not from any place of, of consequence. Listen, listen to what Philip says. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. That's Philip and Nathaniel talking. Not only did Philip not come from anywhere important, the response about Jesus is, come on, can anything good come out of uh, Nazareth? Why would that be? 
Why would they be concerned if we're talking about the Messiah that he came from Nazareth? Yeah, he was supposed to be from Bethlehem, the city of David. So if he came from Nazareth, how could he be the Christ? This is back to the cultural setting. They were looking for a conquering king. They got announced a lamb. They were looking for somebody coming from the city of David, a royal king like David, and he was somebody from Nazareth. Now, you and I know, because we know the whole story, we've read the whole book, he was born in Bethlehem but raised in Nazareth, later called Capernaum as home. But they didn't know that. So this was an immediate stumbling block. Something, the reason I point this out is something you need to know is Jesus is not always interested in immediately clearing everybody's conceptions about everything and making it easy for you to understand it. He is more than willing to make you step out and trust Him without explaining it, trusting that it will become clear as you go. How many times in your Christian walk has the Lord encouraged you, pulled at your heart, you couldn't sleep or whatever it was until you did something having no idea how to do it? And then as you began to do it, things got clear. And sometimes not clear, <laughs> you know. I moved from Baton Rouge to Lafayette without having a clue how life was going to work. Uh, real confusing time in my life, but that's the way Jesus does things. Why does Philip... It says, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, why does Philip say that's who he found? The one Moses wrote about in the law. Now, this is something you should know. I mean, we already taught this. What was the messianic expectations? There was, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? And are you the prophet? This gives you a very good clue. They were waiting for the anointed king. If they didn't see him, they were waiting for the fiery prophet who would come and change the whole nation. If they didn't see him... They were waiting for the prophet like Moses. They would come and lead them out of whatever trouble they were in, making them the chief nation. So he didn't ask, are you a prophet? He didn't say he is one of the prophets. Most He said, is he the prophet? That's because in Deuteronomy 18, Moses promised a specific prophet, one person, that if you didn't listen to what he said, you would be cut off from the people. Now, this is picked up on in Acts. It's picked up on in several places. You know why that's really significant? It really does not matter what all of the law says. I mean, it's awesome and it's great and Jesus didn't contradict a bit of it. He brought it to a place of fulfillment. But if Jesus had said, you must stand on your head and bark like a dog to be saved, according to Moses, the guy who gave the law, that's what you would have to do. So, this gave him... Aside from his heavenly power, aside from uh, the miracles that he did, it also gave the Jewish people a reason to allow uh, in their thoughts for him to bring change. Because Moses said, whatever he says to do, you have to do. Now, obviously they weren't expecting him to bring contradiction, but it should have allowed them to think, well, the Pharisees say this, but he's the prophet and he says this. Does that make sense to you? So that's, that's who they say they're looking for. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, Here is an Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. 
Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now you read that and you say, what? Was he looking from a hill in a distance and saw him? You know, or is he talking about uh, some kind of spiritual sight? What is it that he's talking about? Well, one thing we know. We know that it was impressive enough to Nathaniel that he, he concluded from it that he was the son of God and the king of Israel. That kind of rules out him seeing him from a distance, doesn't it? Why do you think this is really the first of the miraculous signs that John includes in, in this book uh, and it's not found in any of the other books? Why would you include this? I believe that in proving that Jesus is the Christ, giving you reason to believe in Him, that in believing in Him, John twenty thirty one says, you will find life. I believe He's trying to emphasize from the very beginning, wherever you are in life, whatever you're doing, Jesus has His eye on you. And what was the first words Jesus said to him? Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. The reason God has His eye on you is He's looking at your intentions. But do you believe that Nathaniel was perfect? That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, Nathaniel, you're, you're an Israelite uh, who has achieved perfection. He said, there's nothing in you that is false. He was, he was letting Nathaniel know that he had had his eye on his motives long before he'd ever meet, met him. And where did he see him sitting, by the way? Under a fig tree. Fig tree is a symbol throughout the Bible of uh, national Israel. You have been sitting under all that God had revealed, which was uh, his, his constitution to the nation of Israel, the law. And you know what? There's nothing in you that's false. You're doing everything that you can to be pleasing to God with what you know right now. Now he's fixing to show him, but there's a much better way. You remember they received him as a prophet. He said, hey, well, this is the one that Moses said. So whatever he says is what we have to do. And that's because he says, you know what, Nathaniel? You're an Israelite in whom nothing is false. In other words, I've watched your life and I can tell that you're somebody who has tried to handle what you have very well. No false motives. This is not all that unlike Cornelius and that's the comparison I'm, I'm making in Acts. What do we know about Cornelius in Acts? He's an Italian Roman soldier who was outside of the nation of Israel. He did not have God's special revelation as a Jew. And yet, his prayers were heard in heaven. And yet, he had uh, an altar in heaven. And he had been giving alms to the poor, the Bible says. So what did God do for him? See, he was somebody in whom nothing was false. Not that he was a perfect guy, but there was something in his heart that pushed aside the false desires of man. And he wanted truth. So what did God do for Cornelius? He revealed truth to him. Well, Jesus does the same thing. This is a pattern throughout the Bible from beginning to end. Those who want truth, God will get it to you. Those that are seeking, God will open it up to you. It's only those that really don't, that are out for false motives, self-gain, that really don't want to know the truth, that it's not revealed to. But what's amazing about that is you find out it's only a remnant that really do want to know at all costs the truth. So, the truth remains hidden to the masses. And it's not God's fault that it remains hidden. It's because of their heart. 
So he says, here is an Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me, Nathanael asked? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Right away, what does Nathanael throw on him? What his hope of the Messiah is and what he would believed in the Scripture. You're the King of Israel. He's hoping, he's believing, he's wanting to put his faith in that. Now, Jesus is the King of Israel and he will, uh, at this next coming, fulfill everything that Nathanael probably hoped he would do then. But one of the great tests that Nathanael's going to go through with all of the rest of Israel is this guy they've put their hope in. When he does not act like Nathanael expects him to act, what will happen? This will bring meaning to you when we get to John 6 and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave me too? See, if you believe that he was the prophet Moses spoke about, then everything that he said to do was God's will for you to do. But when he began to say things that they didn't understand, that they didn't like, they deserted. They left him quickly. Well, it's important that we have that right from the beginning. But here's really what Jesus said, and this is the heart of what I wanted to get to tonight. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God and you are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. In the Bible, what Jesus just did was called the word of knowledge. It's when you have supernatural knowledge that you could not have through natural means. This is when uh, you're praying and suddenly you feel like the Lord says to you, hey, David's going to be in a car wreck or something. And so I start praying for David or I call David and say, hey, man, don't get in your car today. And sure enough, there was a wreck at the end of his road. Or there's going to be a famine And two years later, at the appointed time, there was a famine. It's a word of knowledge. Jesus had a word of knowledge about him. We have those in the church today. Uh, I recently talked with somebody who saw somebody on TV who was uh, speaking out what is supposed to be a word of knowledge about healings occurring as as that was going on. And as I was hearing it, uh, the person telling me was somewhat skeptical about it, and I understand why. You wonder if the guy's got some kind of ISB in his ear and is just listening to something somebody else is telling him. And it could be that. But that practice is very biblical. Not, not that Jesus was in front of a television camera, but the word of knowledge shows up throughout the Bible. But here's what's important. Jesus said, you believe because I gave you this word of knowledge, if you will? You're going to see much greater things than that. And what is he telling me he's going to see? He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In this portion of of the Scripture that we've read, what has Jesus been called? He's been called the prophet. He's been called the Son of God. He's been called the King of Israel. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just prior to this, the Messiah. Before that, Elijah uh, or the Christ. All of those things He's been called thus far. He said, Nathaniel, you believe because I said I saw you under a tree? Let me tell you what you're going to see. I'll explain this in a second. Turn with me to Genesis 12. What did he tell him he was going to see? Heaven open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Isn't that what he said he was going to see? Now, to you and I, we read that and we go, wow. Heaven's going to open. We're going to see angels crawling up and down Jesus to get from the earth to the heaven. I mean... 
if you were just thinking about this literally with a logical mind. But remember, Greeks look for wisdom and Jews seek a sign. Jews look at things according to function, whereas Greeks only look for logic. And we think, that doesn't make much sense. Jesus is you know, somewhere between 5'5 five, five and 6'5". Uh, he's not reaching into the heavens. How does this work? To the Jew, immediately, this was a picture that took him to a certain place in his mind. Now, when I say Washington, D.C., what comes to your mind? Monument, capital, nation's capital. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of places like that. Um, Grand Canyon. You have a spot on the globe. I say Niagara Falls. I mean, there's uh, a bunch. Of, <laughs> I thought of a couple of negative ones, actually. <laughs> when you think of Batman, <laughs> New Orleans, the armpit of Louisiana. Um, when Jesus says this, and the people that are around are hearing it, Philip and Nathaniel, listen to the first time something occurred in the Bible. In Genesis 12, starting uh, in verse 6, this is on page 12. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh, of Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built another altar and he called on the Lord. He's in a place and the Lord appears to him and says, to you I'm going to give this land and to your offspring. Right? When he leaves there, he goes to hills to the east. Then once he's there, it says, something's on the west side and something's on the east side. It says Bethel is on the west, and I is on the east. That's because he was in Bethel, in a place that the original name is Luz. He leaped to the hills to the east, leaving Bethel on his west, and I is on the east. Does that make sense to you? The reason this is important, and we're going to look at this in about five places, is Abraham is the father of our faith. He's the father of the Jewish nation. Indeed, most people would say the father of the three Great world religions, although I don't think all of them are great and I don't think Abraham's truly the father of Islam. But Abraham was given a special promise. This is what began this thing that, that we know uh, as the way. It was that he would be the father of many nations, that all nations would be blessed through him, and that all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. He was going to inherit a special land. The first time God ever appeared to him and told him that, he set up an altar there. And that place was called Bethel. Now, he moves on from there and he does other things and he sets up other altars. But the first thing you need to remember about the place called Bethel is it's where the promise was given to Abraham. You will inherit this land and your offspring will forever. Now, this is not supposed to make sense yet, but it will right here. Turn to Genesis 28. You'd be hanging right in your Bible going to about page 31 in the Thompson chain. The first time Bethel ever appears in the Bible is in Genesis 12. The second time it ever appears in the Bible is in Genesis 13 and it's simply a reference to that area. The next time it appears in the Bible is in this 28th chapter. In the 28th chapter and 10th verse, we read these words. Jacob left Beersheba, that's a southern part in Israel, and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. 
He had a dream in which he saw a stairway, or your footnote will say a ladder, resting on the earth and its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and He said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out out to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. And will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I'm going to read a little more here in just a minute. We're going to find that this very place where this happens is Bethel. Beth in Hebrew means house. El in Hebrew is God. Uh, I went to a place called Beth or Bet. It's same same word. Shen, house of ivory. Bethlehem, house of bread. Bethlehem is house of bread. This place, Bethel, in the Bible is the place where God spoke to Abraham first and said, I'm you this land, and I'm going to give it to your offspring. Okay? Now, Paul picks up on that word offspring and says, hey guys, I realize it could mean a whole bunch, but it means a specific one offspring, Paul says. Now we get to a place where Jacob is having some problems. He's having to leave home. And as he's leaving home, he goes and he has a, uh, a nap, and he lays his head down, and he has this dream where this whole promise is repeated. I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to give it uh, to your offspring. Singular person, again, can mean many, but in the Bible sense, it means the one. Okay? Jesus says, Nathaniel, you, you think I'm, uh, I'm somebody great because I told you, I saw you under the tree? What happens when you see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on not a ladder, but the Son of Man. He's telling him right there in that statement, and a Jew would understand this, I am the instrument by which you can contact heaven. More than that, what does it say here? Um, In 28, verse 17, He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So when Nathaniel's hearing this, when Nathaniel hears that... Uh, heavens are going to open and he will see ascending and descending on Jesus, uh, angels. He's hearing, I'm seeing the, the gate to heaven when, when he sees him. That's what, what it would have meant to Nathaniel. To us, it, it's, it's almost nonsensical. But to him, he'd grown up on these promises. He had heard them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the patriarchs of the faith. This promise was repeated to all of them. Not only is He the gate to heaven, not only is He the only means by which you contact heaven, the angels ascend and descend on Him, but what else would happen? He said, at this place Bethel, God said, I will give you this land and I will give it to your offspring. So to Nathaniel, hearing this, he sees Jesus is calling Himself the gate to heaven. He's calling Himself the only way that you can access heaven. 
He's also calling himself the offspring through whom everybody would inherit this land. He's also, by the way, calling himself the house of God. Because this place was called, how awesome is this place? This is the very house of God. That was not speaking of a whole geographical region. That was speaking of that specific spot. They called it Bethel. And now Jesus is saying, when you look at me, when you look at this spot, you're going to see Bethel. You are seeing the house of God. Isn't that a whole lot more rich, a whole lot more full than just reading through that normally? Watch, let's finish the rest of this. In verse 18 of 28, Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Isn't that interesting? I didn't have time to look up Luz, but isn't that just like God to take a place that was named something for a Canaanite city and call it the house of God? Isn't that what He did with you, Mandy? You, Matthew? You, David? You who used to be the house for something that was not clean and now calls you the very house of God? Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Way before the law, this is the very place where Jacob, who became Israel, who was the father of the Jewish nation, a true Israelite, the first Israelite, stood and said, you know what? God, you really are worth serving. And if you'll look out for me like you say that you'll look out for me, I'll give you a tenth of everything I had just to show you that I believe you're looking out for me. And I'm going to call this place where you and I met the house of God. Now, Jesus shows up and He meets a young man and He says, wow, you are a true Israelite, a descendant of Jacob. Somebody with whom there's nothing false. I saw you while you were under the fig tree, a symbol of Israel. I saw you while you have been in, uh, acting as a normal Israelite under the revelation you have. And the response is, wow, you're great. You're, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. And he says, wow, you believe because of that? What happens when you see heaven open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man? I bet it blew Nathaniel's mind. And Philip and Andrew and Simon and everybody else. They remember all the expectations they had of a Messiah? They didn't, not anywhere in there did you hear he was going to be the house of God, did you? You know, as we talked about the anointed one, as we talked about the prophet, as we talked about uh, Elijah, all the messianic expectation. Did you hear anywhere in there that this guy would be the house of God? But that's exactly... Did you hear anywhere in there that he would be a gateway between earth and heaven and the only way to ascend to the Father or descend to the earth? But that's the claim that he's making right off the bat. That's because this book was written to you for one purpose, that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that in believing that, you would find life. From the very beginning, Scripture is very much what we call narrow-minded. Jesus is beginning to assert from this spot forward, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. By calling himself Bethel in saying that, the Jews understood exactly what he was saying. There are several times we're going to be reading the book of John and they're going to have stones to stone him. And you're going to be reading it going, you know, I don't really understand why they were so mad. And it was statements just like this. 
is because to them it meant something uh, a whole lot more full, a whole lot more rich than it meant to us. They got it and we don't. And what's worse is we try to cram a Greek-type interpretation on it. Go read all the commentaries. See what they say. We try to make this make sense to us rather than us adapt ourselves to what he actually said and listen to it. Turn with me to Genesis 31 real quick. We're not going to go a whole lot longer with this, but I do want you to understand it. What happened in Bethel? Bethel is the place that the first... Well, the place that the father of the Jewish nation, Jacob, who became Israel, made a covenant with God that if he would be his God, he would be his man. He would tithe to him to show, I'm submitting to you. You know, I'm giving you the first of everything that I have because I believe it's you that made the provision for me. It's the place where God promised to one offspring, through the offspring, they would inherit the land forever. So in Genesis 31... Starting around verse 10. Uh, This is Jacob as he's going through some difficult times in Laban's household. It says, In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw the male goats mating with the flock which were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, I answered him, Here I am. And he said, Look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have seen that Laban has been doing to you. All that Laban has been doing to you. This is the important verse. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and you made a vow of me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Bethel became, from Jacob's first experience, from Abraham's first experience, all the way through a symbol for something. To the Jew, when they thought of Bethel, they thought their attachment to the land of Israel. To a Jew, when they're circumcised, it's entering into a covenant with the land and with God at the same time. Well, Bethel became a symbol of that very thing because it was here that God confirmed with the man Jacob His covenant for the land and um, Jacob confirmed with God the tithe at this time. So from here on out, every time Bethel's mentioned, what comes to mind is the covenant with the land and what God had said there. So now Jesus shows up in the New Testament and He looks at Nathaniel, who is an Israelite, who is a true Israelite, who is longing for the promises of Israel. And He says, man, you believe because I gave you a word of knowledge. What if you see, or you will see, I think He told him. Turn back to John. You shall see heaven open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's telling him, you saw that because I did that. You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's a gateway to heaven. He's the only way to and from heaven. He is the house of God. He is the instrument by which they would obtain the land forever. And He is a symbol of their covenant with the land at Bethel. In Genesis 35, um, 
We're going to see how powerful that, that thought actually was. And then we're going to close. In Genesis 35, starting in verse 1, this will be on page 40. The mere thought of returning to Bethel for Jacob and his family later causes certain actions. This place became so... Anytime you tell somebody who's not a businessman who travels there every day, if anybody in Texas says, hey, mom, dad, hey, brother, sister, I'm fixing to go to Washington, D.C., it immediately would invoke in their mind perhaps a tourist trip to see uh, one of the monuments or the nation's capital. I mean, what else is there in Washington, D.C., right? Besides crime and everything else. It, it carries with it that thought. Well, at the, in the Jews' mind, because this symbolized the house of God, although it was just a rock, I mean, there's no temple here, but it was a place where he had met with God that he called the house of God. It symbolized their covenant with the land. And because it had been promised that he would see angels ascending and descending from that very place, to the Jew, just to talk about going to Bethel caused a reaction. Watch this. In uh, Genesis 35, it says, Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and sit there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. That's the first time this happened. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. You got that? This is the man of God called to start the nation of Israel along with his wives and his children and all that he has. And what do they have in their midst? Foreign gods. And what makes them get rid of them? Is it a burning love for God? No, it was the thought, I'm going back to the place where we first entered into a covenant with God. I'm going back to the place that symbolizes God's house. I'm going back to the place that is the very gateway of heaven, so I better get right. So what is Jesus really telling Nathaniel? He said, hey man, I am the thing that should bring repentance in your life. I am the thing that you need to get ready because I am the gateway to heaven. I am the thing that you need to get ready because I am the only way that a true Israelite like you will ever inherit this land. Hey man, you need to get ready because I am the offspring to which this land is coming. See, when he called him a king, he had no idea what he was really saying. He didn't know how true that was. Even the, the patriarch Jacob had foreign gods in his house until it was time to go back to Bethel. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who was with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak tree at Shechem. Then they set out and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. I guess I'll read a couple more verses. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God had revealed Himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Because it was there that God had done what? Who had revealed Himself to Jacob. And why did Jesus come? John 1.18 to make the Father known, to reveal the Father. 
You see how rich this statement is? He's the gateway to heaven. He's the only way that you can ascend or descend to heaven. He is the means by which God would be revealed to Israel. Do you see how it says that? Now, you may think I'm stretching. They meant, they, I trust me, they understood this. They knew and were ashamed of their history with foreign gods and all of those things. But at the thought of going to Bethel, it brought about a change in a true Israelite. Now, Jesus is staring at a true Israelite and He's letting him know, I am Bethel. I am the house of God. I am the instrument that reveals God. I am the gate to heaven. I am all of those things. Isn't that beautiful? Wouldn't it be a shame just to read that and just keep going? Well, we're going to close there. Let's turn to John and let's read that one more time without a bunch of elaboration from me. And hopefully it'll be something you think about for the next few days. Remembering that the book of John starts off with Jesus as supreme and from the beginning, coming to introduce light or life to the world, the world not understanding it, not accepting it, but also not being able to overcome it. Then John moves on to introduce Jesus as the one who is revealing the Father. Then we introduce the world to the herald for Jesus, John the Baptist, who is making level paths so that everybody can receive Jesus because it's going to be a different idea. It's going to be something they were not expecting. Then we see him point out Jesus as the Lamb of God, which was not something they were expecting and their hearts had to be right just to understand that. And now we see Jesus standing, taking it a whole other step. I'm not just something that's come for sin and sacrifice and redemption. I'm the very gateway to God. I'm the way that God gets revealed. In fact, I'm the house of God. Now, if you didn't catch it as I went through all of these things, All of them occurred in the same place, at a place called Bethel. It was not called Bethel when it happened. It was called Bethel afterwards when they looked back at it. That's why they keep calling it love. When Jesus makes this reference, it was inescapable to them and they understood it. So I'm going to start uh, in verse 43 and we're going to read through the end and we'll be done. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, The next thing that we're going to go to, and we're not doing this tonight, is a wedding. If you had just heard what these guys heard, that Jesus was Bethel, the house of God, that He was the one that would reveal God, that He was the offspring, that He was the land, He was the gateway to heaven, all that, it'll make perfect sense why Mary and why everybody else was waiting for Jesus to do something special at a wedding. 
You won't get any of this if you don't have any Old Testament concepts. That's why we're giving them. There was a wedding promised through Isaiah. And they all wondered if this was that wedding because they'd just heard this announcement. Now, I'll cover that next Wednesday. Y'all stand up and let's pray.